0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a new bill gives the Ford government authority to sell unused school properties in Ontario for housing. What are the concerns and what are the implications? Well, we'll talk about that. Canada's largest federal public service union has issued an ultimatum to the federal government. If a deal's not reached by nine o'clock tonight, they're going on strike. Peggy Nash, chair of the Ted Rogers School of Management, will join us to talk about that. And why are we scared of well-planned communities that don't worship cars? It's a great op-ed piece that we'll discuss. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We know that there's a a lot of flack and a lot of pushback uh, about some of the new policies enacted by the Ford government lately uh, to do with the, the responsibility of municipal governments. Uh, about planning, uh, about, you know, all sorts of different things about urban boundaries. Uh, Historically, shall we say, uh, that has been the responsibility of local governments. They're elected by you and me, and there are representatives uh, to tell us basically how the city is going to grow, where it's going to grow, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, The Ford government is kind of taken over an awful lot of that responsibility, of course, when they've decided uh, that they will have a say as to what's going to be built and where. And uh, and that's causing a great deal of frustration. I know Hamilton City Council has had a lot of flack uh, about uh, the urban boundary expansion issue. They made a stand on it not just before the last election that said there'll be no urban boundary expansion. And the province, of course, came in and said, oh, yeah, there will be. Uh, sorry, guys, uh, that's not your call. Uh, much to the chagrin, I guess, of the, of the council. Well, the next step of that uh, was announced yesterday when uh, Education Minister Stephen Lecce uh, talked about an omnibus bill with a number of different things here, and it has to do with uh, some education funding and, and some help for teachers, or so they say, in hiring of new teachers. But it also uh, talks about, well, what they call surplus properties. Uh, you know, boards of education uh, invariably will buy plots of land and, you know, for future school sites. It's uh, been going on for years and years and years. Now, as to how that's paid and everything else is another controversial issue, but essentially... Uh, What uh, Minister Lecce said yesterday was that uh, if, in fact, they determine that there are surplus sites uh, for schools, or maybe schools that maybe are no longer used because of population shifting, etc., that the province will most likely decide what's going to happen with the land. Now, they try to justify that, of course, by simply saying, well, well, yeah, we're going to build housing on it. I mean, that's what they do with lots of stuff. That was also the justification for the expansion into the Greenbelt, too. But uh, was, the minister was quite explicit about this yesterday. Uh, minister Lecce says uh, he thinks this is a better way and a more efficient way for these properties. Here's what the minister had to say about that particular subject.
1: We're going to have to do, be a lot smarter and a lot faster with how we build in this province to meet the needs of growth. through our schools today. That already have pressures because of uh, occupancy and uh, enrollment rising. So this bill helps us streamline the approvals, expedite delivery, and think outside the box.
0: Uh, thinking outside the box essentially means that uh, what they seem to be doing here, anyway, is uh, is taking that responsibility away from boards of education and simply saying we're going to handle this. Uh, and now, to be fair about this, I mean, you know, boards of education and for that matter, city councils uh, exist at the, the pleasure of the province of Ontario. I mean, it's the province that actually issues the charter for the city of Hamilton or the city of London or the city of anything uh, to exist. And, uh, and they can withdraw that if they want to. I don't think it's ever happened. Uh, there was a situation with the Board of Education in Hamilton some years ago where they actually refused uh, to comply with the, the provincial government's uh, outlines and guidelines for budgets. And uh, the province moved in and said, okay, you're not going to do this anymore. And they, they appointed a special uh, person to come in here and actually oversee the budget process for a number of months with, with the Hamilton Board of Education. But that, that doesn't happen that often. But for them to move in here is is quite frankly something that, that I guess a lot of people just didn't seem to think was coming. But it can mean, for instance, if there's a school that uh, that is no longer needed or necessary because of population shifts, and that happens you know, people are moving from different parts of the city to the other, and maybe a school that maybe had five or 600 students at one point, maybe only has a 100 or so, and boards of education have had to make those policy decisions about, well, do we keep this one closed, do we keep this one open, uh, do we build a new school, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the government simply said, well, we'll take that land over and uh, decide what we want to do with it. In other words, uh, the policy before this announcement by, by Minister Lecce was the first thing that the the board had to do was offer it to the other board, the Catholic board or the French board, and see if they wanted it. And more often than not, the answer was no. Uh, and then, of course, the city. And, and, and op- right? there was an opportunity. There was a chain of command here that, that had to be followed. And the provinces simply said, well, move, we're moving to the top of that chain. Uh, so we get first right of refusal. And if we want to use this for pu- public housing, uh, that's probably what we're going to do now and and again it's just another situation here where uh, a lot of people are scratching their heads and saying why are we electing local councils and and local boards of education if the province is just going to oversee all of this stuff anyway it's taking an awful lot of the authority away from uh, boards of education and from city councils with some of these decisions. And uh, it, it, it's a very frustrating situation for the people at local government uh, because you like to think that the money that's going to be allocated for something like this infrastructure and, and, and new housing developments, et cetera, et cetera, uh, will flow through the city and that's that's not to naively suggest that everything runs smoothly at the local level it doesn't always and that's that's a problem we know that uh that oftentimes uh, things get log- bogged down because of, of some red tape at the municipal level and the province had promised they were going to do something about that but it seems as if their the answer in the, at least in the short run anyway is to simply say well you know we'll we'll just do it for you okay we'll make those decisions for you and uh, it's not going to sit well, I don't think, with an awful lot of people on boards of education, and certainly uh, with our city councillors as well. Uh, and and the, it, it, I guess what we have to ask ourselves here is, what's the end game here? Uh, I, I know we mentioned just a, a couple of seconds ago the justification for incursions into the green belt uh, was, well, we need to build more, build more housing. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that, as you may recall, the the very committee that the, the Ford government set up last year to determine uh, how much housing we needed said explicitly you don't need to go into the green belt there's more than enough available land uh, to build without going into that well they ignored that advice uh, from their own committee and decided to do this anyway so what's going to be the end game here and and in all of our communities we can always point to schools uh, that are old and decrepit and and, and maybe underused these days Uh, Is that going to be used for housing? And the other element of this, I guess, the question that uh, doesn't seem to be answered yet anyway, is when the government says they're going to use this for housing, are they going to build it? Are they going to pay for it? Or are they going to simply auction this off to, well, developers? And and at what price? It's, it's, it's a, a tangled web that they seem to be weaving here. And we're just not quite sure exactly where this is going to go. And I think that's causing an awful lot of the angst that, uh, that we're hearing uh, from both sides in this issue. Uh, but that's only one of uh, a number of different uh, very, very controversial issues uh, that we're going to be dealing with at Queen's Park over the next little while. And uh, we want to talk about a number of those things right now, including the one that we brought up yesterday about uh, the Ontario Science Center. Uh, now, even if you have never been to the Ontario Science Centre, uh, your kids may well have been on school trips. Uh, it's it's a, an incredible sight to see, and uh, it's, you know, it's hands-on uh, science, and, and it's one of these things that uh, these school trips, and, and there's always school trips that go to the Ontario Science Centre for years and years and years now, uh, is is very, very valuable learning experience. However... Uh, The apparently the the line that we're going to get later today is, well, the Ontario Science Centre is falling apart. It's decrepit. uh, No government has invested in it, including the Ford government, I suppose, for the uh, last number of years. And they are now going to float the idea. As a matter of fact, I think there's going to be an official announcement about this proposal later on this morning. They're thinking of moving the Ontario Science Centre down to Ontario Place, which is another problematic area for the government that being of course the fact that it's it's old and decrepit uh and they're looking for for an, an anchor for it something to draw people back down to that particular location in downtown toronto on the waterfront a reporter asked him about the uh, the ontario science center and uh, he said, yeah, that would be a great fit to have the two of them there. Well, apparently they're going to try to make that official later on today. So to talk about these and a number of other contentious issues, uh, I want to bring in uh, Colin DeMello. Colin, of course, is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News and uh, has uh, been following a number of these stories and reporting on them. Colin, thank you so much for the time. I know it's going to be a busy day for you today. Uh, but let's let's start off talking about uh, the the bill, the the omnibus bill that uh, the minister Lecce talked about yesterday. Uh, there's some things in here about enhanced education and enhanced work for teachers and enhanced training for teachers. But the idea about what to do with surplus school properties is is getting some pushback, isn't it?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting part of the entire legislation that, you know, I've been hearing from liberals, conservatives. A lot of people seem to be quite enthused about the idea because in some areas of the province, you might have, you know, declining enrollment, but a number of schools in that area that, you know, are being underutilized. So what the province is saying is, you know, if you've got one community that has two schools that have, you know, only 15% or 25% enrollment, perhaps they can collapse the two and then figure out what to do with the other schools. Now, that could either be one of two things. They could either offer it to another school board that might need the space, or they could offer it to uh, build a long-term care home or a uh, affordable housing building. And if that doesn't work, if there's no need, the province says, then it gives them the right to be able to kind of sell that. Now, that's not unusual. Right now, if a school board has a surplus property, what they have to do is first, they've got to go to every other public uh, agency. So, whether it's you know, the local municipalities, public health units, etc., cetera, hospitals, colleges, universities, and ask them, hey, do you need any space? Well, we've got this space here, you could use it. And if that doesn't work, then the school board has the ability to go in the open market. What the government is doing here is, it's putting itself at the front of the line. It's saying, we are the ones who get to decide what happens with this very valuable asset. And if you think about where schools are in some communities, you know, they might be right in the middle of uh, the town. They might be, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a very uh, accessible location that might be suitable for what the government might be looking to do, which is build a lot of affordable housing. It, it is going to get a lot of pushback because a lot of people are, you know, sensing that the government has a lot of ties with the development community and who's leading the charge here, the developers or the government. And, you know, what what happens when you collapse schools together? You mean that it means that you have a lot of students traveling on buses from one school to another. So, you know, the government still has to flesh this entire idea out. We don't know which properties they're talking about. We don't know what the timeline is, but we know that they're giving themselves the power to make the final decision over what happens with empty schools.
0: I know there's always you know more to come on these sorts of things as they they you know flesh these things out, but but that's some of the stuff I've heard and it's only been like 24 hours I guess Colin since the you know, Minister Lecce talked about this, but when they say for housing, does that mean they're going to build it? Are they going to build the housing? Are they going to pay for it, or are they simply, as you say, uh, hand it off to a developer and say, okay, this is yours. Uh, And and the same thing with the long-term care facilities. If, in fact, they decided to go that way, I'm assuming that means it's going to be a a, a private sector long-term care facility. We already know that uh, there's a lot of concern about the ties that this government has with some of the boards of directors on those facilities, too. So uh, I can understand some angst now that people are simply saying, wait a second here, what do you mean by this and what's going to happen here?
1: Well, I also think, you know, you have to kind of look at it holistically, right? I mean, the government is looking at almost every single public asset uh, and and looking for how it can kind of leverage that asset to either sell in the open market or convert into some kind of housing. and, and, you know, some people are saying, well, some things might be sacrosanct, right? Maybe having, uh, like, uh, multiple schools in, in some communities might be more important than you know, building a tower uh, so that a lot of people can live there. On the other hand, a lot of these communities are also growing because we you have hundreds of thousands of people who are choosing uh, Ontario as their home who are immigrating to this uh, country and this province. And, and a lot of communities are saying, well, we need the space to, to house all of these people. So, So the province is kind of, in between a rock and a hard place, where you know, on one hand, there are people who are saying, no, you can't just automatically take every single public asset and repurpose it for whatever you see fit because there has to be some kind of um, you know some some level of respect held for some public assets. But on the other hand, there are also a lot of people who are screaming at the government saying, you need to create more uh, affordable housing. The big question to your point here is if they sell it on the open market, what guarantee does the government have that that building that's going to be put on that property is actually going to be affordable versus, you know, just something that could be attainable uh, by, by people who are looking to upgrade from, um, you know, a, an apartment to a condo, for example. And that affordable housing component when, you know, how the, the cost of a home is getting more and more expensive and wages aren't really keeping up, that really is where the government is really feeling a lot of heat because it's not really making sure that this housing is affordable uh, versus just, you know, having
0: housing for the sake of housing. This is going to rekindle an old debate, and I know you've covered this in the past uh, in a number of different municipalities, is, uh, you know, the taxpayers have already paid for that property, for the school, whatever it's going to be called. Mm Uh, you know, and now the government's going to come over and sell it again, and they say, wait a second here, who who really owns that? Is it the Board of Education of that particular community? Is it the province? Uh, and, you know, I know that as as you've reported in the past, uh, technically they all exist at the behest of the province. I mean, they're the ones that signed the charters for the city councils to exist and boards of education to exist. But uh, uh, I think you're going to get some pushback here that they're kind of jumping the queue here and say, we'll we'll take this over here. And you got to wonder, well, what are we electing local councils for then if the province is going to make all those decisions?
1: Well, yeah, I, I mean, we've we've seen time and time again this this government likes to exert a lot of control over, mm-hmm. you know, those agencies and entities that are under it, right? You take, for example, local municipalities. You take, for example, the boundaries in Hamilton, the boundaries in Waterloo that the province is arbitrarily expanding. You take, for example, uh, public health agencies that the province wanted to downsize. You take, for example, the city of Toronto, which the, the the province decided to cut the number of city council seats in half and interfere in the election multiple times. You take, for example, strong mayor Powers. Um, and you take, for example, what the government tabled yesterday, which is legislation to now set new priorities for school boards that align with provincial priorities. Those provincial priorities are set by the government. So the government says, OK, we want reading, writing, arithmetic to, you know, those rates to start to increase. So they've set that as their North Star and they're now saying well we want all the school boards to set that as their north star and to make sure that you come up with a transparent plan that you're presenting to parents get input from parents on how you're going to achieve all of those numbers and at the same time they want the trustees who are being elected elected by people to kind of take a course to you know make sure that they know what the provincial priorities are and that you know the province can assess that they have the qualifications to meet those priorities, right? It, it really makes the, the the province kind of, you know, a, a, a lord over this entire kingdom, uh, as as they see it, which is all of the school boards and the public health units and the the local mm-hmm. municipalities, and they've made made a lot of decisions that really, you know, push their will onto a lot of these agencies, and to a, to a degree, school boards and municipalities, they operate at the behest of the province. They can't do anything really to push back because in some cases, there's funding that the government can hold over their head and say, listen, if you do as we say, you'll get more, or if you don't do as we say, you might get less. And yesterday, the education minister said to the school boards, listen, you know, there will be, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but there will be consequences to not creating a plan that aligns with our vision, to not implementing that plan that aligns with our vision, and to not Uh, You know, if they don't uh, consult with parents on what this multi-year plan is on how to improve reading, writing and arithmetic. And so all of this related to school board properties. Yeah, it's just the province once again saying, you know, this is I want to pick and choose what what's mine and the rest is is yours. And whatever unused schools will be transferred to the Ministry of Infrastructure and the Ministry of Infrastructure gets to decide what happens with that public asset.
0: It's going to be a hot and heavy time, I guess, today, and we haven't even touched on the Ontario Police announcement. We'll uh, we'll be watching for your reporting on that uh, global news at 5 and 5.30 later on today. Thanks for this Colin. really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900CHML. Workers are are, are fed up.
0: We want corporations make record profits, but yet nobody wants to pay working people. It's time for workers in this country to stand up and stand with us and say enough is enough and push back. That's uh, Chris Aylward. He's the uh, Public Service Alliance of Canada president. And, uh, well, you've seen a lot of him and heard a lot of him in the news over the last couple of days. Uh, This is a big deal. I mean, they could go on strike as early as tomorrow morning if they don't get a deal by 9 o'clock tonight or so they tell us anyway. Uh, So let's talk about that. And this is another uh, potential well, could be crippling strike if, in fact, these guys do walk out. Uh, To talk about this, I'm pleased to welcome back to the program Peggy Nash. Peggy is the chair of the Ted Rogers School of Management Center for Labor Management Relations and also the author of a book called Women Winning Office, An Activist Guide to Getting Elected. Uh, Peggy, great to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for the time today. Glad to be here. Uh, this is this is a big deal. I know you we know, we hear about public service workers, and well, these are government employees, and uh, they make tons of money, and their benefit packages are great, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, they were uh, well, let's face it, uh, under the same sort of circumstances many of us were during the pandemic and the lockdown, uh, with freezes on salaries, and uh, like so many other unions whose contracts are up, uh, they're looking to get back on their feet again and to make up for lost time. So there's so, some legitimacy here to what uh, the, the union is asking for here. And and I don't know if the, if the if the government's ready to to, to acquiesce here, are they going to dig in their heels? What do you see happening here?
2: Well, they have until nine o'clock tonight. I assume both sides are still at the bargaining table, and you know, as the saying goes, it ain't over till it's over. So, <laughs> there will be a deal at some point, and it'll either be tonight by nine o'clock, or sometime after the workers take job action. Um, You know, at some point, the sides will come together, and there is pressure on both sides, obviously. No worker wants to go on strike. You get a lot less money, and there's a, a lot of pressure on you when you go on strike, so no one takes it lightly. On the other hand, there's a lot of pressure on the government because they've already taken so much criticism for poor federal public services and uh, there's pressure on them also around spending and how much they spend on the federal public service. So, um, and all the contracting out they've done, you know, frankly, maybe if they put a little bit of that into workers' wages, <laughs> they'd be further ahead.
0: Well, well they are a nice part of the problem, though, doesn't it? I mean, you know, when, when governments say, okay, we're going to cut back and and there's going to be a reduction in, you know, th- this kind of spending and that kind of spending, invariably that that means the public service. Uh, and, and I know what they've done in the past, different governments have done this in different ways, but, you know, they can do it by attrition, they can do it any number of ways. But it's, what it does uh, is, I've, as I've talked to a number of people that are, that are at the other end of it, they're the public service workers, uh, it puts more pressure on them. In other words, there might be 10 people in your particular division, uh, but by attrition and, and other things, maybe now there's only five or six there, uh, which increases the workload. And they're simply going to say, well, we want to be compensated for it. So I can understand where they're coming from. But at the same time, as you and I have talked about in the past, uh, this government in particular is really uh, under the, 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 the pressure right now because of, of the, the government spending and the deficit and the debt that they're incurring right now. And and everybody, including the Bank of Canada and, and every economist that I, I think has ever graduated from university is now saying, you got to get spending under control here. So, so where's the middle ground here, Peggy?
2: Well, the middle ground is whatever the union and the employer come to an agreement on. But, you know, it's, it's a little rich to say that somehow workers have been, uh, making out like bandits here. You look at some of the, the CEO salaries of, uh, not, not just the grocery chains, but many, uh, many sectors of the economy where the, the top executives, the shareholders have been digging in with both hands. And somehow workers are supposed to tighten their belts. I mean, these workers haven't been without a have been without a collective agreement since 2021. They've been in bargaining now for a couple of years. And meanwhile, inflation has spiked. So that means, you know, these federal workers, but all workers uh, who haven't had a pay increase have to tighten their belts while they see, you know, some people, as I say, digging in with both hands and doing very well. So, uh, you know, I think it's fair for workers to want to keep up with inflation. And I think that's what the union is bargaining for here.
0: Well, and there are other things on the table here too. I know, invariably, it all comes down to money. We understand that, uh, but but you know, while we've talked an awful lot about what the work from home policy uh, that many companies are, are starting to use now, and and I, I assume that the PSAC's looking at that as well and say, look, I you know, employee X here has been working from home for the last two and a half years now. And they're being, you know, they're fine, you know, they're, they're, they're productive, things are going. Why do they need to come back into the office and incur uh, that extra time and the travel expenses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, and I don't know that there's been much discussion about that, but it seems to be a big issue for them. And and there's other things here, too, like, you know, maybe maybe benefits or, or you know, uh, an, an add-on salary for people who speak in indigenous languages, for instance, uh, to be able to better serve the public. I mean, some of this stuff here makes all kinds of sense. And, and uh, you know, when you look at this, Peggy, you have to wonder, well, why haven't they come to some resolution about some of these issues? Uh, because they, they seem as if these are things that are, absolutely need to be done if you want to get everybody back to work. But they always seem to wait till the 11th hour and then they make these uh, as, as you know, issues that are going to be deal breakers.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, neither one of us is at the bargaining table, so we yeah. don't know. but. Uh, you know, there are some things that both sides try to come to agreement on early on because they seem not as contentious. And I assume that's been the case here. Uh, what I have seen through the media is there has been progress with every round of bargaining. Uh, but usually the toughest issues and that includes money is usually left to the end. And, um it, you know, as I understand it, from what I, I understand in the media, that the work from home issue is not that the union wants to dictate or determine who works from home and for how long, but that they don't want to just leave it up to the employer to arbitrarily say, well, okay, mm-hmm. folks, dust off your shoes, you're coming in to work Monday. Uh, that there needs to be a negotiated agreement about uh, which workers, uh, how much time, how that's going to work. Uh, you know, not everybody wants to stay home. Not everybody who likes working from home wants to do it full time. And so I think the union as the representative of the workers is just trying to find uh, a way forward that whereby they can represent the workers in something that's pretty fundamental. If you have kids uh, or others you're looking after and you need to make special arrangements for them, uh, you, you need a bit of notice. So having predictability is important.
0: Absolutely. And and we should remember, we're just about out of time here, but uh, uh, if in fact this does happen, and we're hoping that they can find a solution, but if it should happen, uh, that includes Canada Revenue Agency. And uh, the deadline to file your taxes, of course, is the end of this month. And uh, they have told us. Uh, whether there's a strike or not, you have to have that in on time or, or there'll be penalties involved. I just want to throw that out there for people, too, that think, ah, I've got a bit of a leeway here. No, you don't. <laughs> that's, not, that's not how government I works. I just
2: did my taxes on the weekend and I thought afterwards, was that dumb? Should I have waited? <laughs> I think you got to get your taxes done regardless. <laughs> no,
0: you did the right thing. My T4 is sitting right here in front of me now. And I thought, OK, <laughs> all right, that's my warning shot. I better get going on this. Peggy, as always, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the time.
2: OK, thanks. Take care.
0: Good talk with you. Peggy Nash, of course, uh, from the uh, Ted Rogers School of Management Center and uh, Labor Management Relations. <laughs> you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast
1: on 900 chml
0: i want to talk about a, a great piece that uh, was written by our next guest uh, it says why are we scared of well-planned communities that don't worship cars uh, the author is uh, lorraine summerfield of course you know lorraine is a columnist for driving.ca and uh, you can read her fine uh, prose in the hamilton spectator uh, for our hamilton listeners and uh, she joins us to talk about this uh well I was going to say a very controversial piece. Uh, first of all, Lauren, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Bill. great to be here uh, I, it's It's controversial, but I, 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 should it be Should it really be or is this like, yeah, that's the way I want to live? Uh, we, you're talking about the concept of of what many people are referring to now as a as as fifteen minute cities and and some people are pushing back on this uh, very, very you know actively on this and let let's talk a little bit about that.
3: I would just love everyone to, when you go in the real estate section, grab any real estate section and read what they profess as being the best qualities that this home they're offering has for you. They always start off with close to schools, close to downtown, close to shops, close to transit. That's what every single one stop starts with. And we're talking in cities, of course, not rural stuff where the idea is to get away from everyone. But that is the selling feature in every single real estate thing. If you go to put your parent in a retirement community, they boast that they can get their hair down, they can go here, everything is right there. We already know what we need to do, and ever since cities have been planned back in Greece and early Spain, every single one has been put around a market, an agora, or a, a square, and built out from there. Why anyone thinks this is a new idea, I have no idea. It's been in place since before we had wheels. Forget cars. <laughs>
0: Well, but as you point out in the piece, I think I think the the, the the sin that these people have committed is they put a name to it, and and, and you know it's a label. It's a fifteen minute city. And they say, "Oh, you're restricting people. You're saying you can't go out of your neighborhood." <laughs> that that's, that it's ludicrous
3: it's you can see so many diagrams of what it's actually suggesting i don't know i i'm old i remember jane jacobs and she wanted walkable cities. <laughs> it's a very similar idea which is using all the infrastructure around you for multiple purposes because that makes sense so people can play here people can work here people so this idea they coined this um there's a guy about oh, 10 years ago maybe coined 15-minute city in a ted talk it doesn't matter what you call it. It's always been the same thing, which is accessible. People can go about their life. You can, you know, go to the library. You can walk to places that you need to be. You shouldn't have to always drive and go through the expense of a car. And I get that I write in the auto section and I am writing myself out of a job every week because I do not understand the confusion around this. It's better for everybody if people can access stuff without having to drive.
0: (laughs) It's, I, and I, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. I mean, I, I, I like my car. I, I use it when I have to, obviously. Uh, but there are a whole lot of people in different communities that don't need one, and and it's not that they can't afford one. Some of them, I guess, fall into that camp. But if everything is convenient, I, I'll give you an example. As I was reading your piece yesterday, uh, our our middle daughter, uh, when she was going to, to university in Toronto, uh, lived in a neighborhood just like this. So it's called Liberty Village, yes. and uh, it's it's a nice. A, you know, relatively new area and, yeah. and it, rather not inexpensive either, since we paid the rent for it, but anyway, that's another topic, uh, but it was, it's right down by the Rogers center there. And uh, everything was right there. She had a grocery store. The bank was there. I mean, you name it all within about five or six blocks of there. And, and to me, that's the perfect place in which to live because everything is there. She, she doesn't drive. She doesn't need a car because everything was right there. And when she had to go to classes, which was really just up Spadina to the university campus, you hop on the streetcar. And, exactly. and, you know, more and more people, I think, would be much happier living like that if they could. Well, we've always built,
3: like, it's purpose-built communities, which we've always done. If you look in New York at the bodegas, you have um, blocks where this is the grocer, and, like, everyone lives and works within that block. Maybe not always works, but they definitely live in those blocks. And it's just normal. And my sister moved downtown Toronto, like, oh, she's going to kill me 45 years ago. And I was like, <laughs> oh, what, what are you going to do? And I went down there to see her. I'm, like, 13. And in her, the convenience store in her building was better than any supermarket out here. It had better produce and everything else because it served this loop in the neighborhood. She didn't need a car. She never you, – you walked. You could walk everywhere. Yeah. So this is not a new idea. This is the way we should be planning our cities. It makes more sense. Paving over for parking lots and parking structures and all that stuff. I was in Chicago a few years ago and the new condo was going up and they were putting in 0.5 parking spaces per unit. Well, out here in Burlington, that would just be an uproar. They want at least two spots per building. And I'm thinking, we're going backwards. We're making the cars too big. We're, we're driving too many of them. And for a lot of people, it's not the option that's good for them. If they can't drive or don't want to drive or can't afford to drive, if they're older and don't feel confident driving, it, you know, if your parent could access everything they needed while still living where they live, wouldn't that be the goal? Like, is, wouldn't that be great? So I am just i don't know when we go on vacation we go into these fabulous european places and what is it we love about it we just left the hotel and walked and went everywhere <laughs> it's like people yeah. that's the goal
0: <laughs> but but you know it's mindset and and you just talked for instance about you know some of these uh new condos that are going up and you know, let's face it a lot of communities are trying to do that the the old idea what infill and and you know this is all well and good uh but a lot of the, as you say, the bylaws are, are like 1950s bylaws. Uh, there must be two parking spaces per unit in apartment buildings. and buildings. Co- well, you don't need that anymore. And a lot of the people uh, and, the, and the developer will come back to the city council and say, well, wait a second. I, I, I can't do that. That means I'm going to have to build more. Well, and the, the residents that are going to move in there. Don't need two parking spots. Most of them don't anyway, nor do they want them anymore if it's in a community like this.
3: And that's why you have to plan the whole thing at the same time. It has to be purpose built. You have to want, you have to lay down what it is you want to have in this community and then build it. And that means not just letting developers build single family homes that are as spaced out as possible. When you're doing this, we have to go into it with purpose. And I, I live in a single family home and I drive a car. I'm the world's biggest hypocrite, but the car sits in the driveway most of the time. Like I, you know, I don't want to slump groceries home, but we did when I was a kid. We took the wagon. I remember. And it, it didn't. Wreck us. (laughs) It was fine. So I I just, when people are confused by this, or they say, oh, you're going to be, you know, they're going to chip you and charge you if you try and get out. You're going to be in a big cage. I really need people to understand A, it's a very old idea, it's a very good idea no one is taking your car away from you. No one is suggesting that you can't go and visit someone in another town. This is scare tactics that, frankly, I don't know where they've come from. It's ridiculous. Everyone's trying to make everyone else's lives easier. And if you look at your entire family, you might want to flex a little bit on your thinking because for younger people and older people and students and people that maybe can't afford a car, these are good things to be considering. And so please, Don't worry about who's coming for your stuff. Worry about what's good for everybody in your family and say, hey, that would be, you know, actually a very good idea. It's not about you and what you're going to lose. It's what about it's what everyone else is going to gain.
0: But when you compare, as as you did in the piece, uh, to. To Hamilton Burlington Toronto London whatever with some European cities it, it's an apples and oranges comparison I mean you know, as you mentioned there are parts of Paris right now uh, where you're not allowed to drive and there are parts of London uh, in the old section of London where uh, cars are not allowed except for government vehicles uh, but that's because those those are cities that are five six hundred years old uh, and and that they weren't built for cars in the first place uh, but what they have done which I think we have really dropped the ball on is they have maximized the use of public transit in those cities and, and we don't do that very well in North America
3: no we have garbage transit Toronto if you overlay a map of the train system in Europe and the train system in North America it will make you laugh and laugh and laugh because there's like one line on ours (laughs) and I read somebody two return tickets to on Via it was like $780 for a a four hour train thing or something it's just obscene we're not maxing out the things we do have and you're right that's the kind of infrastructure we should be looking at and Europe does have hundreds of years on us like they do But to cut pollution, they've had to do this. The buildings are getting wrecked, and there's too many cars. And you got to remember, too, over there, most of them drive smaller cars. We drive big Mm -hmm. tanks, so we're making it worse. Our roads are more dangerous with these vehicles. And the whole thing about electrifying them, don't electrify great big pickup trucks. We should all just be driving exactly what's big enough. If you need a truck, cool, go for it. If you don't, don't do it. We're just we're assaulting our roads and each other, and I don't know why anyone would be arguing that having a walkable area around you to do most of the stuff you need to do, how could that be a terrible thing? It's good for your health it it's 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 just good it's good for your well being You go for a walk it just helps. <laughs>
0: But, but where's that discussion now, Lorraine? I mean, you know, we've got a, a provincial <laughs> government, for instance, that's, you know, saying we need more houses. And, uh-huh. and I can get that because, you know, there's more immigration going to be allowed here. But are they talking about planning communities or just slapping houses together? Uh, or is there going to be <laughs> a discussion about making, like you say, making neighborhoods, not just houses?
3: No, it's uh, politicians, for the most part, uh, they run to get reelected. And you always have to follow the money to see where that's coming from. And our particular um, provincial Government right now is probably the most dangerous I've seen in my lifetime. And I have been following politics since I was tiny. I was taught this by my father. So we are seeing some very dangerous precedents being set. We are seeing some... Incre- I mean, now they're talking about just removing homeowners' rights and seizing property and stuff. I'm like, who voted for this? I'm sure you people didn't think this was on tap. Same in St. Thomas, when the mayor didn't even know they're putting in an EV plant. There's too much emphasis on... Um, Well, cars, for one, and replacing every car with an electric car does not solve any problem about congestion. Anyone that drives downtown Toronto, anyone right now, every headline is telling you it's going to get worse in the next four years because of construction, and it is a nightmare. So make the train service more robust. Make transit more robust. Give people a reason not to take their damn car Downtown into to an area that's already plugged. It's the, the worst congested city in North America. Yay, Toronto won something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but but that that's the whole thing. I, I, I I'll harken back. You know, we're in a big, as you know, a big kerfuffle here about LRT in in Hamilton. And you know, the, you know, the government said, yeah, we're going to do it, but they haven't put a shovel in the ground. I don't think they even bought the shovel yet. But, but anyway, <laughs> uh, but, but I remember when that first started, I, I had the the person who was supposed to be the point person for the city on this, and I said, so what's, what's your goal? She says, my goal is to make to get you out of your car to make you you know inaccessible for you to drive. And I said, well, you're going to lose that. If you're going to force me to do that, I'm going to fight yeah. back, and so is everybody else. I said, yeah. if you want people to take public transit, you have to make it affordable and accessible and okay. convenient. That's all you have to do, and and they don't do that.
3: Well, you know, when, you,
0: you, we sense. mentioned London a couple of minutes ago. London, England, yeah. that is. Um, yeah. You know, last time we were there, my wife and I, we stayed at a hotel well near the Marble Arches there, that end of town. Mm-hmm. We went everywhere. The Tower of London oh, on public transit is very convenient. You can you mm-hmm. can take the tube, you can take the the it's all great. Uh, And if you make it that way, and I'm sure it costs them an arm and a leg to to, to fund it, but people take it and they don't need cars. They don't even think they'd have to have a car. They don't even consider that uh, because the the public transit is is so affordable and accessible for them. We don't do that here.
3: No. And I tell people you should really, really want great transit because it means fewer people would be on the road and you'll have more room in your car. Yeah. So you can come at it from either angle that you want, that you want to drive and you want fewer people to drive, but it has to be accessible and it has, you said, it has to be affordable. And transit, um, transit's not a thing that makes money. And when you put, when you elect governments who walk around saying, I'm a businessman and I'm going to treat this like a business, do not put an X beside that name. Just don't because businesses are not to make money. I'm sorry, governments are not to make money. They're to do the best for the most and to represent you and give you a decent standard of life. You can't do that if you're trying to max out money in a medical system, an education system, a transit system. That's not what they're there for. And unfortunately, we have gone so far the wrong way with all of our thinking on this that we look at transit and go, oh, it's just not worth it. So we'll we'll make transit more expensive because no one's taking it. Well, the people that need trans are the ones usually who can't afford cars or don't have access to one. Our thinking is so backwards, and we we have to change this for for the environment, for our future generations, for the people we love who cannot get around any other way. We have to think about everybody, not just ourselves, and that's within your own family even. But I... If you, if you build it, they will come. Put in decent transit, bike paths, walking paths, make make it calm and safe for people to access everything around them that way. They will do it. We saw that during the pandemic. I've never seen so many people out walking all the time, and most of them have kept doing it. So we, we can do this, and is what we should be doing. Roads and roadways are for people. They're for all of us. They're not just for drivers. Drivers don't win by default.
0: And, and the takeaway here has to be is, is we're going to continue to grow, and, and we're like talking about building 1.5 million houses here in Ontario, uh, planned communities, planned neighborhoods. I mean, you know, you look at some of the, the large cities, we're talking about the European cities like London and Paris, but New York's a classic example of that too. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't dare drive a car down to, in, in, you know, in Manhattan. It's scary. Uh, no. Leave that for the taxis, but, you know, they have a public transit system. Let's, let's face it, a lot of the people that work, work in downtown uh, New York, they don't live there, they live 20 miles away. But the, the transit yeah. system and the train system uh, is, is so structured that they don't need the vehicle. They just take the train into town, take the train home at the end of the night, like Dick Van Dyke used to do on the old TV show. You know, it lived in New Rochelle. Uh, that's part but of New York. And, yeah. no, and we
3: think we, of all the movies filmed in New York and most of them are about taking the train into Manhattan. Yeah, rich people, like everybody, and it's totally normal because that is the way it was planned, and that's what they do. And yes, there's drawbacks to everything, but I know people that live in New York, and they wouldn't think of owning a car; it'd be the dumbest thing in the world. So.
0: No. Yeah, and when they go back on Friday to their homes and their their little communities, uh, yeah, there's a shopping center there, there's a movie theater yeah. there, so they don't need to go back into the city anyway. No. It's it's thought provoking, and and it, I hope people read this and use this as a template for what we could be and what we should be. Uh, Lorraine, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. You too. Thanks, Bill. Take care, Lorraine Summerfield. Of course, you can uh, read her stuff in Driving.ca, and uh, her column, of course, appears in the Hamilton Spectator as well.